This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. In this special edition of GT the Podcast, Drs. Randy Craven, Oliver Tosin Smith, and Paul Singh will expand upon the guidance presented in the evolving guidelines for intracameral injection paper by Dr. Jeffrey M. Liebman et al that was published in the journal Glaucoma in March 2020. This podcast episode is supported by Allergan Medical Affairs. Good day, everyone. This is Randy Craven. I'm joining you from lovely uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and I'm really pleased to be joined by um, Oliver Tusen-Smith, as well as Inderpal Singh. And today, our topic is going to be that of Darista. Now, Darista is the intercomural bimatoprost sustained release implant. It was just recently approved. And what we wanted to go over today was just really, where does it fit in? How do you use it? What kind of things do you look for when you're using it with patients? And we have just a good discussion about how it might help us in our care for these patients with glaucoma that we struggle with every day. I was fortunate enough, uh, several months ago to be involved with a panel where we sat down and tried to hash out what kind of guidelines should we come up with for emplacing or for placing an implant in the anterior chamber. And we went through all of the different kind of scenarios that you might be able to do an implant. And today we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, we'll also hit somewhat on what kind of success might you see out of this? What kind of pressure reduction? How long will it last? And we'll talk a little bit about the different uh, studies that were done related to that. But to jump right into it, I just wanted Paul, if he could, to just kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, Darista. And uh, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll share with us his, uh, his enthusiasm for it, uh, which I think is well-founded. So I'd, I'd like to hear you, Paul, talk a little bit about it. No, thank you. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for the introduction. It's great to be part of this uh, podcast. I think as, as, a, as a glaucoma specialist or anybody treating glaucoma right now, it is an exciting time. We, we say it all the time with MIGS and with laser trabeculoplasty and you know all of our tools that we have in our toolbox to help achieve that kind of outcome that we want, which is patient high satisfaction, decreasing compliance issues, and hopefully a good control of IOP. And I think Darista, this intracameral implant of, of, of imatoprost, 10 micrograms, I think does allow us another tool to achieve that, that, that kind of outcome that we want. And, and so what I found, and luckily I was also part of the phase two and three trials and you know, had that experience, but you know, in clinical and commercial available world that we're in now, it does open your kind of your potential pool of patients. Now it's indicated for the reduction of pressure in open angle glaucoma and octahypertensive patients. So if you have an open angle glaucoma patient, it doesn't matter if it's mild, moderate, or severe, advanced glaucoma, you can potentially use Darista. And I think what we're seeing is that the patient adoption has been so nice because it's done in the office, which we'll talk about. But for me, I think just having the broad spectrum of patients, what I've noticed is it's, it, it could be someone who's pre or post SLT. It could be someone who's, let's say, going to have a glaucoma subcon surgery like a Zen where you want to maximize the ocular surface and maybe temporarily get them off a topical drop before they have surgery. Therefore, there's a number of different scenarios where I've used this already in from mild to moderate to 
to severe. And so I think that in a nutshell, what I've found is that there's a lot more patients than I thought that could potentially benefit from this versus pigeonholing it just one type of patient population. I think the relative efficiency and, and patient adoption has been pretty high, which has been very nice. And, and that's why I'm so excited about this product. That's great. Tosin, what kind of patients have you been looking for yourself and what kind of things do you do when you're preparing them for the thought about receiving Darista? So um, it's a pleasure to be here, um, to be with you guys to talk about a product that I'm equally uh, excited about too. Um, in looking for patients that uh, to, to implant Durista, and first of all, as uh, Inder said, the angle has to be open. But uh, many people you know, ask me, who, who would you think of putting this in? The, f the, the first class of patients I would think about are those people who, first of all, um, I'm trying to just keep off their drops. So people who are on a prostaglandin initially just by itself, people who may have had an SLT uh, or whom, who I would do an SLT on, uh, I would consider doing this, this as an option. Or somebody who's had a mix, who has a waning effect, I would definitely consider this as well. Other people with ocular surface type issues, uh, this is something to definitely think about. I, I, I put together a list for myself and every time I think of, of options or a scenario where I would, I would do this, I, I write it down because it, it helps me uh, make sure that I'm, I'm maximizing the use of, of the medication. And then when you're chatting with your patient, Tosin, and you're saying to them, you know, we're going to look at giving you this, how do you explain it to them, you know, that, that what you're going to be doing? You know, because the, the thing that a lot of us kind of are concerned about is, you know, the word needle and eye, just not saying that. And other people are just straightforward about it and they just, uh, don't really downplay uh, the injection or upplay it necessarily, but they just uh, uh, share it with a patient in different manners. What what are you been comfortable with? How do you talk to them about it? So there's there's two things that I do. The first thing is before I talk about how the medication is is placed in the eye, I talk about the benefits. And already by the, by 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 the time we have that discussion, the patient is already very excited about it. Uh, we talk about the fact that this medication, especially if they're on monotherapy, we place it in, in your eye. I use the word place it in your eye. It's slowly released over time. And then, um, and Paul, for you, when you're getting somebody ready, so, you know, obviously you had them sign the informed consent and you talked to them about it. Uh, do, where, where are you injecting it? Are you doing it in a minor procedure room or at the slit lamp or where are you, where are you performing the injection? You know, and that's the beautiful thing about this procedure or this uh, product is it can be injected either in the office, it can be at the ASC or hospital, depending on your kind of infrastructure. Uh, and it can be done, you know, supine, lying down, or you know, at the slit lamp. It's really I think the three key factors are do you have magnification, can you stabilize the head, and do you have aseptic conditions? I think those three have to be met. And if those are met, you can do it anywhere. So for, our, for example, for us, because in the studies, we did it in a supine position. Initially, my first probably four or five cases, my um, injections were done in a supine position. We have a nice little microscope and a little bed in the office. It's easy to do. But I realized that actually at the slit lamp was, was pretty efficient, and patients tended to be more comfortable in a lot of ways. So nowadays, uh, I do it at the slit lamp. 
And I think I don't even use a speculum anymore because I think there's enough just to keep the eye open. I go temporally, uh, parallel to the iris, anterior to the limbal vessels, and I just go right in, press the button, come right out. And, and so I, I think from from now, from a flow and efficiency and a patient perspective and perception perspective, it's really been nice doing it at the slit lamp. Obviously, you want to make sure the head is stabilized. You want to make sure you're comfortable holding the device, et cetera, the injector. But I think once you feel comfortable with that, the slit lamp to me has been has been the way of, I go to for most of my patients now. You know, it's interesting for me, I'm in a academic setting. So of course we have, you know, many people involved with approval of anything getting done. And we ended up choosing the minor procedure room, which for me has actually worked pretty well. So I'll put people back in the supine position. And I like it because for the right eye, I come just superior, I'm right-handed. So I sit above them and use my right hand and come superiorly and put it in the right eye that way. And when I'm doing the left eye, I go temporal and I've I've liked that. It's it's worked fine for me. And I, I think that uh, the patients have also felt pretty comfortable when they're in the spine position. And I know that that's what I'm currently doing. But I do think that the needle is so sharp that it would be easily done at the slit lamp. And Tosin, I know you've got great hands and have been able to do anything surgically. So I'm sure you're already doing a slit lamp. Is that right? Yes, I'm doing them at the slit lamp, and and uh, just like Inder said, um, the patients are comfortable, and I'm also comfortable because many of us do procedures at the slit lamp, and it happens very quickly. Um, I remember the first patient that I did; she she, by the time we were done, she asked if that was it, and I guess the anticipation of what you're going to do is much more than what 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 actually happens when this is done. And what are you guys using for aseptic technique? Now. Um, I, I think the most important thing here is making sure that you have um, you, 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 you cleanse that eye before you go inside the eye. So um, betadine has been very important in, you know, a drop of betadine in the eye uh, preoperatively. And after you've put the uh, local anesthetic there, at, uh, usually the tetracaine or propyracaine uh, to numb up the eye. And, and, and then that sits in there for a few minutes before we proceed with the injection. And Paul? Are you using the five or five or ten percent povidone iodine when you're doing it? You know, I think if you look at data, five percent has been shown to be as effective as ten percent with less toxicity. So I, I think five percent is what we're using, and uh, overall, I think patients don't have the burn and sting that they do with ten percent. And uh, you know, I think is I think the, to Tosin's point, I think if you, if you really got to make sure the surface is healthy beforehand. So if anyone has any active MGD telangiectetic vessels or any kind of you know blepharitis, I think it's important to really address that first before you do anything, whether it's hypochlorous spray or whatever else, doxycycline, whatever you use. Uh, but for the most part, I think just the proton iodine, 5%, as long as you, you have that uh, step done, I think if you look at data, I think you're fine from a prophylaxis for infection perspective. Now, Paul, obviously in this COVID era, we're masking everybody. Uh, but I know the retina docs, a lot of them like to mask when they were doing intravitreal injections uh, because there's some suggestion from literature that, that uh, either talking or not having a mask on uh, could potentially raise the risk of infection. Do you use a mask yourself, Paul? I do. I, I think right now our protocols in the office now for whether it's any exam or a procedure like this is both a patient and myself wearing a mask. Mask. Uh, so for me, that's I think a, a big, a pretty much standard for all all the exams and, and procedures. And then Tosin, as soon as you have finished the injection, what's your what's your protocol? What do you do with the patient right afterwards? 
So right after the injection is done, I, it's very important to make sure that there's no leak from that side. So I may sit there just for a few minutes, just putting with a Q-tip at the uh, needle entry points, just to make sure that that um, there is no leak. And then once once that happens, um, uh, I would have a drop of antibiotic put in the eye and just have the patient remain in the room, sitting in that position. Well, we tend to we're tending to do that now because people are not moved from room to room and. I have them remain uh, in that sitting sort of head up position for about 20 minutes. Um, most of them either drove to drove themselves or, or had a family member drive them. So they will be at least making sure that their heads remain uh, elevated uh, uh, for about an hour after the procedure to make sure the device um, uh, settles nicely into the angle. What's nice about the soot lamp is that you know you see it pretty much within within a minute or two uh, sink down to the bottom uh, uh, in the inferior angle. And so what's nice about the soot lamp is it kind of you see it right away. And so I found that now most of my patients, in fact, we looked at a study of all of our soot lamp injections, and with with less than three minutes, we had 100% of them down migrated into the inferior angle. So that's the nice thing about it. By the time they leave the office, you're pretty much confirming that they're down at the, in the position that they should be in in terms of the implant itself. This episode of GT the podcast is supported by Alcon. And uh, Tosin, are you using any topical antibiotics afterwards, or what's your protocol for discharge? Are you seeing them back immediately, like the next day or a week later, or what are you doing? So um, I'm not using any prolonged antibiotic um, after they've had the procedure done. What we're doing, however, I guess it depends on whether you do both eyes at the same time or one eye. For now, I'm starting off with doing one eye at a time in patients who need it bilaterally. So then they get to come back. Um, they don't come back the next day. They come back in two weeks, especially for those people where I'm trying to figure out whether uh, in terms of efficacy, how well this is going to work for them as an individual. They come back in two weeks. We see what their, um, their pressure is doing in one eye, and then they get their other injection. Then I feel... Um, sort of more relaxed about giving them an extended follow-up uh, time frame after I'm sure uh, as to how this is working for them. And Paul, do you give your patients any restrictions at all? Or, uh, I mean, do you tell them not to stand on their head and do yoga or what, what do you do? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of an interesting point. I mean, I, I think I tell them, look for the next half an hour, hour, just kind of keep, keep relaxed yourself. I tell them not to rub their eye. The biggest thing is not rub it, their eye for the risk of infection. Um, but otherwise, I don't have any, any other restrictions for them, to be honest with you. Uh, if you, you know, the, can this implant move slightly in the inferior angle? Yes, it can. But we haven't seen it, you know, kind of one around the entire anterior chamber itself. It kind of stays pretty, it has a kind of a sticky, tacky material. So I tell them most daily activities are fine. I tell them for the next hour, just kind of take it easy. I don't give many antibiotics post-operatively. I think, I kind of learn from my retina colleagues, uh, just kind of, as long as you have good aseptic condition during the procedure, I think we're okay not to give them prophylactic antibiotics post-op. And then I just have them come back in about a month or so. I do bilateral for most cases now. Based upon our flow in the office, we found that bilateral same day has been has been working for us. I think from our flow and everything going on and with COVID, et cetera, we found that it's been working well. We haven't come back in a month. To, to, to towards this point, though, if you have one patient you're not sure about the efficacy, having one eye done and, and watching to see how it works before doing the other eye is also a nice nice way of approaching it. Now, do you have any optometrists that uh, refer to you that you use the Darista in that might be seeing the patient afterwards? 
Yeah, well, we have internal optometrists that are seeing these post-ops, which is very nice. But now we've, we just started to actually educate. I've done some seminars in our local optometrist to discuss uh, Darista and how that could help their patients. So we're starting to see some uh, influx of referrals now, just as people have started to come back online from the COVID uh, shutdown. So uh, we're starting to get more external ones, which is nice. And I think that's where the education is so important to, for those who are referring what to expect post-operatively and, and down the line to make sure they understand how it's going to look, et cetera. That's very important for the communication. And then, uh, Tosin, what have you been seeing as far as your efficacy? What, what's it done for you and your patients? thus far? I know we haven't had it a long time, but certainly you've had a chance to see some of the patients. So yes, um, the, the intraocular pressure reduction is right there within that five to eight millimeters of mercury um, that is reported in the studies. Um, for many of the patients that I may, um, that I have used it on, they, they were on the prostaglandin to start with. So there's maintenance of their intraocular pressure. Um, you know, initially the, the question was, um, would you stop the prostaglandin before you do this to see where the intraocular pressure will start from? But for that, for those people who were controlled and maybe had ocular surface issues, it was a, an issue of maintaining their intraocular pressure where it was and, and, and knowing what their maximum intraocular pressure was, we're seeing good, a, a good, good response, good efficacy from the medication. That's comparative to what you see in the Artemis studies. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to kind of help the listeners understand some of the information out of the clinical studies because it gets a bit confusing. Uh, the phase one and two data was a dose ranging study where basically we used different concentrations in the implants just to see how well it would work to try to find an implant to go forward with. But we did follow some of those people in the phase one studies out for a couple of years. And what we found is that some of the 10 microgram patients, which is the same as the approved label, uh, would have pressure control up to two years. In fact, 28% of the patients would have sustained pressure reduction for, for a couple of years. Now, that's a bit different than the phase three trial, basically multiple administrations, where we were trying to get sustained control for a longer period of time, so we used multiple implants. Now, the device has been approved for a single injection, so it kind of follows more of what we found out of the phase one, two trial, but still the phase three study did tell us quite a bit about what happens with the pressure, and that by three months, most of the patients have pressure control. I mean, it's like like 100% virtually. And at uh, six months, 60%, so those are easy numbers to kind of remember. And again, as I mentioned, from the phase one data, we saw that 28% uh, of them had pressure control out at 24 months. So it is a sustained option for patients. Uh, it's labeled for a single administration, and we'll see what happens as further studies come along. Uh, for, for further use of it. One of the reasons the FDA didn't uh, approve it for multiple indications is there needed to be some things sorted out with, um, with numbers of implants and safety for the cornea. There was a little bit of suggestion of multiple implants that there might be uh, some concerns for the corneal endothelium. And, uh, but with one injection, there was really hardly any evidence that it was uh, doing anything significant to the corneal endothelium. So, so I think it's safe to say that it's, it's okay to use it for a single injection. What are you telling your patients, Paul, when they ask you about um, what happens when it wears out? What are you telling them? Well, you know, the beautiful thing about um, the patients that we're picking, usually they have some issues with compliance or you've identified some issues with compliance. 
And, and so therefore, if I can tell, look, it may be six months, maybe a year, maybe up to two years, just like you mentioned, Randy, in the studies, that we may get the efficacy we want without having to put you back on a drop or adding medications for you. I tell, I tell patients it's very safe, it's efficient. We can do one implant and it may last you for six months if not longer, but we'll see how long it lasts. If worse comes worse, we can go back to drops if we have to. We can try a different option as well. But let's try to see what happens with one implant. And I think, you know, with, if it's a cost issue, you can save them six months of cost. If it's a compliance issue, you give them six months, a year, two years at, at least of some uh, reprieve from having those issues with compliance. So to me, I don't shy away from that. I tell them honestly, this is what we don't know exactly how long it'll last. Studies show up to two years in, in about 25% of patients, like you mentioned as well. But I think what I also like to mention one drop, especially if on Lumigan, I say one drop of Lumigan is all that's in the small pellet and it lasts you and it releases medicine over 24 hours. I said for me as a, as a provider, as a, as a surgeon, for me, that's what I love, this consistent release of medication over 24 hours, and it's just one drop, so less concentration, less potential for any of those side effects that you can get with topical drops. So I think that's kind of how I mention it to them. I tell them that don't worry if it goes back up, we have other options that we can do. But for me, if they have some compliance issues, you address those compliance issues, whether it's six months or longer, they're still happy with that option. Yeah. And Tosin, have you seen any adverse events occurring with it yourself uh, clinically? No, no, I haven't. So um, I haven't either. I haven't. I, um, you know, patients get the injection. I haven't had any of the adverse events that have been talk were talked about in the studies. Yeah, in the studies, we did find a few percent of the people had some low-grade inflammation. Um, you know, that that usually resolved over a period of time. So I, I think the good news out about the Darista, as as I look at it, is that it it's a new option, you know, and just as Paul pointed out, some of the patients don't uh, want to use drops and they're afraid of doing a laser or surgery. And this gives us that good other option that might really help address that. And uh, for me, it's an exciting part of our development of glaucoma options for our patients to have this available now. So one other question, uh, Inder, that um, I've thought about as my patients come in is sometimes patients on, you know, two or three medications, uh, is it just too much to expect the single implant to be able to control their pressure? What's your thoughts on that? That's, that's a great question, Randy. And I think we, we can't underestimate the impact of, of compliance issues. <laughs> and so we have to, so we're assuming when they're on multiple topical drops that they're actually taking them all. And, you know, if you look at the phase uh, three trial, um, actually phase, sorry, even phase two, two as well, but the phase three, 25% of patients were actually on more than two or more medications rather. And a number of those patients were off of medications completely in the trial. And we're seeing that clinically where I've injected this you know, implant and they're on, let's say a PGA and a combination medication. And I've been able to get them off of all medications, especially when they're on single, single drop bottles. So I think that we, we have to appreciate that the kind of a typical patient type may not just be someone who's only on a single PGA and you're trying to swap that, if someone's on multiple drops, you'd be amazed and surprised that you might be able to get them off more than that EGA, especially if those patients are not as compliant. So it kind of that's kind of opened up my my view of the patient type more than just the switch over of a PGA or removing a PGA. It's on multiple medications, and that compliance issue I think is something that we see even more when you start to do these injections. For sure, for sure, boy, that's a, I can't emphasize that enough and I'm sure Tosin for you you've seen people who uh, you've been shocked at because a compliance was just something they just don't tell you about you don't know what they're doing and you'll see that happen is that right 
that is definitely true. Um, it, 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 uh, you're, you're surprised because then you come back and the equivalent of one medication and the patient's doing so much better intraocular pressure wise. Um, closing thoughts from you, Tosin? Anything you have that you'd like to throw in on this? You know, I'm, I'm excited in the direction that glaucoma is going. Um, if I think about 10, 15, 20 years ago and look to see where we are now, we have all these great options to take care of patients uh, who have glaucoma. Um, I, I keep thinking about that day when we will somehow be able to manage glaucoma without medications, without you uh, physically having to put drops in a person's eye. And there are several scenarios that we have clinically available to us now where you can actually create that. And I think Jurista definitely adds to that picture of being able to, to create the sort of dropless glaucoma situation in those people who need that option. So uh, uh, this is, it has been, uh, it has been good uh, trying the med medication and uh, I've had a good experience. That's well said. Well, I'd like to uh, thank all the listeners for uh, hanging in there with us on this discussion. And uh, certainly I'm sure all of us could uh, be happy to field any questions that you might have and can get in touch with us. Um, thanks again today. And I'd like to thank the panelists. Uh, this was a great session.